and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get into this episode, while we've got you right here, uh, real quick, if you do enjoy the show, thank you, but could you hit us up with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening? Thank you kindly. It would mean so much to us. Yeah, and it's a huge help now that we're independent and building our listenership up and up because we want to keep the show going and build on our outreach initiatives like Pass the Mic, which we are readying for a new funding cycle. So applications will be open in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for bearing with yeah. us, for the folks who have emailed us to inquire. Sorry it took so long to get back to you. Yeah, but but yeah, so at as at time of recording, a couple of weeks. So less than that when you're listening. Um, but that is it for housekeeping. Yeah. Um, yeah, keep an eye on our socials. We'll be announcing it there as well as on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But that's all we have for housekeeping, which is great because I uh, am no housekeeper, um, as Anna knows from looking behind me on Zoom. Oh, I thought you were going to say from you visiting my house. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm... A trash monster. No, um, it's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, but it has been, I have decided, too long since we have had a Neander talk. Oh, that sounds very serious. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to learn about Neanderthals. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Mm-hmm. I thought that Abergramani was like a a Roman outpost somewhere in like South Central Europe. So not Hmm. that. So a little bit earlier than that? A little bit earlier. Uh, It's named after the person who first excavated it in the early 1900s. So hence the confusing name. But no, it's it's in Spain. Um, Okay. And it is a (laughs) Neanderthal site. And it's and it's really one of the best preserved Neanderthal sites out there. Oh, okay. And one of the ones that really gives us a sense of Neanderthal domestic life and sort of um, spatial use. And so this episode is going to be about Neanderthals at home. Yeah, because we usually talk about Neanderthals at work. So this is nice. We're going to see what they do outside Mm -hmm. their their nine to five. You're kind of joking, but but we do. We usually talk about like what Neanderthals do, like kind of yeah. very functionally. Um, yeah. We don't really talk much about sort of the interior or social life. Um, and so, so this is an opportunity which, like, to do that. I was kind of joking, but at the same time, now that I made that, like, like many of my jokes, they're leaving me with a great, <laughs> great sense of pause. And just like that, when it comes to Neanderthals, we have kind of fallen into the trap uh, that we are like, when we started this show, we wanted to counter mm-hmm. with like our flavor of humans. Yeah. So, well, look at us. Yeah. Growing. Yeah. So, um, you know, another installment of my on again, off again diatribe of Neanderthals are people too. So we're going to start with Abrek Romani and then we will uh, range further afield. But it's a pretty incredible Neanderthal site. And I've been wanting to talk about it for a long time. So here we go. There's a ton of stuff that's unique about it, and we've learned a lot about our Middle Paleolithic cousins from the materials found there. So first, we'll set the scene, we'll talk about the archaeological record from that site, and then branch out to some other sites that add some color to the Neanderthal home life story. Awesome. So we'll start with the usual geography and environment. 
So Abercrombie is in what is today Catalonia, Spain, in oh. the northeast corner of the country. So that's uh-huh. that's where Barcelona is. The capital of Catalonia yeah. is Barcelona. Um, one of the two places I have been to in Spain. Highly recommend. It's one of the three food. places I've been to in Spain. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so Catalonia is bordered by the Pyrenees Mountains to the north, the Balearic uh-huh. Sea to the east, and the uh-huh. rest of Spain to the south yes. and west. Yeah. Uh, so mountain terrain, lowlands, coastal resources. It's a, a beautiful and very varied region. Um, Abric Romani is a rock shelter, not a cave, but a recessed area in the cliffs above the Anoya River. Yeah. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Anoya. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like for things that are around that area, it's it's paranoia. But um, no, yours is better. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the environment. Okay. Um, <laughs> Like now or then? Then. Okay. So the thing is that Abrek Romani has an archaeological record spanning at least 35,000 years. Um, Massive archaeological deposits, as you will see if you scroll down to the next page where I have a photo. So take a look at that while I tell you this. The record goes from about 75,000 years ago to around 40,000 years ago. So that's plenty of time for the climate to fluctuate between cold, dry, scrubby steppe and a wetter, more temperate and forested landscape. During these fluctuations, groups of Neanderthals would have been more or less mobile, depending on resource availability and other factors. So they they would have used the rock shelter for different lengths of time. Like if they were more mobile, they'd stop in there more quickly. Sometimes they'd stay longer. So they're living there? Um, like that's where they go mm-hmm. home at night kind of living well, there? Uh, you know, they travel around the landscape. So like Abrek Romani is one stop on kind of like a seasonal rotation of places. Okay. I think we should think of it that way. I don't okay. know. Maybe there are Neanderthals who, who spent like their entire lives at Abrek Romani. I don't know. Okay. I don't ha- really okay. have a sense of the length of occupation because I, um, as far as I know, there were no Neanderthal remains found at Abrek Romani, oh. despite this length of occupation. These climate shifts also really factor into the incredible preservation because at least 27 times across 12 distinct occupation layers, water flowing through the calcium carbonate based cave, um, the cave system rather, deposited sheets of flowstone during times when the shelter was not inhabited. So this is um, kind of like a limestone-y travertine cave environment. And so water passing through leaches some of those minerals and then sort of deposits them. And so these layers formed protective coatings over any Neanderthal materials from the most recent occupation. Yes, Amber, you have a question. I see your hand is raised. Uh, yeah. Well, just because this is a this is a, an audio medium and mm-hmm. uh, it is frankly stressful to look at the photo you've given to me because it is very deep. Um, <laughs> yes, it's and, a very deep sequence. So I'm, I'm not having a great time looking at it. Um, but could you clarify okay, a little bit? But no, no, no. I'm, I'm, no I, could you clarify a little bit about mm-hmm. um, the distinction between a rock shelter and a cave? Because what you just mm-hmm. told me sounded very cavey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause I think rock shelter, when I think rock shelter, because I have no, cause I've never been to Meadowcroft and like, I, I have, I'm not super familiar with, that's the one closest to me. Um, okay. but, um, I kind of would think of it as just sort of like an overhang, um, which yeah, and it, overhangs it that I've seen like here in the Appalachians, like don't have flowstone. So could you, could you clarify yes. so, a little bit about kind of what it would look like 
like just sort of to walk into the space um, as it was, because this is like tens of thousands. This is blowing my mind um, that it's like, yeah, it's a really deep record. So it's a very old place. So if this is something somewhere where people have been moving through for tens of thousands mm-hmm. of years, um, mm-hmm. I could see how it would be like a known space, but it's a very old space, like a sort of like on almost a geo, ba- mm-hmm. almost a geological scale of of oldness. Almost, um, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. Like, so the picture that I that I sent you or that I put on yeah. the script is a little misleading because this is during active excavations and yeah. so there's there is a shelter built around the site um so it okay. looks more enclosed than it actually is yeah. so yeah in general a rock a rock shelter is um yes an overhang in kind of like okay. a karstic environment so where water is moving through limestone or travertine yeah. in this case um either there was a cave and sort of the front part collapsed at some okay. point, leaving just sort of the the back of the cave. Um, okay. Or is it dark? Uh, as in this case, is it like it's cave just... dark in there? No, in a rock it's shelter? Just, it's, it's a relatively shallow cave. So like okay. abri in French and abric in Catalonian Spanish. Um, Catalan. Is, it's a different Catalan, language. thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my, you can see the gears in my brain just like grind <laughs> to a halt. Um, yes. So a rock shelter is kind of a wiggly term because it can it can mean sort of various depths of shelter. Okay. Um, but my understanding is that Abercrombie is, is fairly spacious. Like it would have if you walked in as it was, it would be kind of a roomy cave, but not very deep. Like not very far back. Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. But but it doesn't. So it and doesn't it's, have it's the sort of pitch black qualities. It's not subterranean. No. no. Okay. No. Okay. That's no. really helpful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. But it still sure. is a place where water would flow through. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but just because um, the the sediments are porous, it's, right? it's like, super karsty. It just sort of leaches through. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so there's all those minerals that water is collecting as it drips through. Yeah. It's not flowing through so much as gradual drippage. Right, um, right, right, right. And then But flowstone is created by the by the the minerals falling out of the water mm-hmm, and depositing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. That's where I started to think like this sounds like a cave. <laughs> but okay. So it could <laughs> have been are... part of a cave at one point, or yeah. it could have just f- formed and it just hasn't it like can a rock shelter become a cave over time? I don't know. Not not to say that it's like a linear progression, but like, okay, I'm asking a lot of questions about geology that probably aren't relevant, but I like really want to understand what's happening here because I've never had an opportunity to ask somebody what a rock shelter was before. Okay, so my understanding is a rock shelter is either shallow to begin with or okay. um, arrives at that state through attrition of a larger... Ah. Yeah, cave okay. or like a larger overhang where yeah. stuff crumbles off and collapses and then there's like less and less of an overhang okay. because right but i don't know i guess okay. i guess if there's like a shift in the water flow maybe a rock shelter could become cavier i'm not actually okay. a geologist as it turns out hmm. okay yeah. <laughs> well this yeah so we're gonna <laughs> go past this picture so you don't have to look at it anymore but it's <sighs> important for listeners to understand yeah. that right now excavations are no longer ongoing at Abergromany. as far as i know they stopped in 2019 
the sediments are at a depth of 12 meters. So, so archaeologists have dug down 12 meters over the past hundred plus years. And according to several surveys that have been carried out, there are still maybe at least 40 meters more to excavate. So I don't know at what point those 40 meters will encounter sterile deposits, but like in terms of like before bedrock, um, there's a long way to go. Okay. We've, we've sort of set the scene. Um, Hopefully there is a sense of what a rock shelter is now. It's like a, it's like an alcove. As opposed to, it's like the the, the first front room of a house, as opposed to like a house that continues farther back. So it, it's like it's like the it's like the craftsman that somebody like has to maintain the front of because it's in a historic district, but they blew out the back and put like a a huge mm-hmm. like a huge a huge addition. Somebody's been on Zillow too long. I've been so on Zillow so much. <laughs> Yeah. but but yeah so it's sort of it's yeah so it's the front space okay an owl cave yes mm-hmm. thank you an owl cave perfect so i'm going to read a short excerpt here from kindred by previous oh. guest and friend of the show rebecca rag sykes if yeah. you're new to the dirt or if you're not and you haven't read kindred yet uh go read a book Do. or go or or you could listen to the audiobook i believe becky narrates it herself um oh, i think she is nice. there yeah, she she's a got lovely, a lovely, soothing lovely voice. Speaking voice, yes. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, so this is a quote from Chapter 7, Material World. And and um, she's writing specifically about Abercrombie. Quote. This also, exp- this also explains why I don't remember this, because by Chapter 7, my mind was completely blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should start again, but like halfway through. <laughs> yeah, I was completely saturated with knowledge at that point. Okay, quote. Hundreds of hearths, many tens of thousands of lithics and bones are preserved alongside perishable things like leaves, pine cones, and carbonized wood. Other wooden objects rotted but left impressions behind cast in flowstone, middle paleolithic equivalents of the Pompeii bodies. Abric Romani holds a totally unique record of the stuff left by Neanderthals each time they moved on, including a hundred or so wooden objects across multiple layers. Mostly fuel for fire, some worked artifacts. Two carbonized, gently curved objects from a layer aged between 50 to 40,000 years ago look very much like wooden platters, somewhere between the diameter of dinner and side plates. The most remarkable find came in 2011 from a level dated to around 56,000 years ago. While yet to be published, press releases showed a large cleaver-shaped tool complete with flat blade and handle, exactly as you might find in the kitchen of a keen chef. Note to self, get a cleaver. It presumably served to slice through soft things and stunningly shows the role of wood technology in everyday Neanderthal domestic life. End quote. So, Amber, that is really what this episode is about, Neanderthal domestic life, because we've yeah. we've talked about their bodies, their diet, their genome, but we haven't really done much with the idea of the Neanderthal home. And the things from Abrik Romani serve to illustrate that there was a much richer life going on than just stones and bones for Neanderthals. And so yeah. since our mission is to learn about the lives lived during our shared human past, I thought this was an important set of stories to tell. So yeah. what are your sort of expectations, not necessarily even for Neanderthals, but just thinking about the concept of home and the yeah. concept of what you do and don't do in a living space? Yeah. So um, things that things that spring to mind 
for me, like sort of as kind of norms, um, mm-hmm. like just from a, like as a discipline is I think that often when discussing home or well, domestic spaces, home is home feels a bit too touchy for a lot yeah. of people. Um, yeah, but like it's, it's too like emotionally imbued domestic spaces as being frequently that's folded in with the places where children are and the places mm-hmm. where child rearing is happening, that it still comes down mm-hmm. to like functional. It, it's sort of a reflection of division of labor and a lot of those. I, I sure. think there's a, kind of a lot of hangovers from the time thinking that women stayed at home and men went out and like a lot of um, the like hunting, you know, hunting versus gathering kind of like these like really out outmoded, not that are necessarily, that aren't necessarily informing research, but are informing sort of a wider understanding of, of what constitutes mm-hmm. what. Um, but I think something that I'm really excited uh, to possibly glimpse in this episode um, as the kind of the concept of home um, is so much of that kind of stones and bones approach to, to Neanderthals looks into like shelter. So even calling it like a rock shelter kind of mm-hmm. thing that it's, mm-hmm. that it's shelter versus um, home. And that because there's this idea that they are um, there's home implies a sense of security that I think a lot of folks don't necessarily afford to Neanderthals because this idea mm-hmm. that it's like sort of this like deep primordial primeval period where you're just sort of like sc- scraping by and subsisting and, and those sorts of things and like these ideas around right, surviving that, versus that, thriving you know yeah and like the, these lingering ideas around um like what nomadism looks like and sort of access to resources thinking that they're doing this to survive, but actually like they've got it figured out and they're doing okay. Like in, in these sort of um, strategies. And so I, th- mm-hmm. I think that that, that kind of sense of getting that sense of security and, and yeah, sort of safety, security, like safety warmth. and belongingness, like that's something that I would mm-hmm. really like to, that I'm really hopeful to get a, a chance at. And so I think that's where kind of home comes into play. Of it being like okay. a place of security or return or, um, or it's something that yeah, is definitely going to kind of guaranteed there. that like even mm-hmm. if you're moving, you have a series of homes because you're sort of seasonal nomads or whatever, you know that you'll be coming back and it's yours. Like it's a sense of of belong, not necessarily yeah. ownership yours, but like you belong there. Uh, something that I understand to be the case in most living spaces, there are places that are places for living and not death. So if there's no remains that were found there, um, that yeah anyway I don't know that, yeah yeah like that that sort of thing it's like well like but there I mean like a lot of the burials that that we see like that are in domestic spaces are secondary burials that it mm-hmm. because it's it's a there's a a greater significance um, to sort of memory and and ancestry but not necessarily the place where uh, decomposition happens um, and then also yeah. like waste so like trash middens are outside living spaces like um people doing their business like outside yeah, of and spaces. that's the case at abrick Germany. there are they got layers they got and layers of like trash piles oh i, uh, I don't know where the turlets are uh in abrick <laughs> but um there are refuse piles like occasionally they would just like sweep out everything in the cave 
or the sorry the rock shelter <laughs> they, they yeah. would like sweep everything out and there are just like layers and layers of sort of secondary detritus um, okay you know ashes from hearths and and yeah. lithic bits and bones and yeah yeah like somebody stepped on one too many stepped on one too many <laughs> flakes and they're like i've had enough of this you need to by the time i get home you need to have this rock shelter cleaned up and they're all like oh God, yeah mom and like brushing it out yeah that yeah it was it was lithics now it's legos the most painful thing to step on um well would you be surprised to learn that the neanderthals at abrick at least during one occupation may have had an indoor bathtub so so abrick romany was better than my last apartment (laughs) (laughs) well i say bathtub oh it's um is it a bath hole it's it's uh, a it's about a small wash basin. Why don't you okay. um, read for us here? Okay. All right. Um, so I'm going to read something paraphrased by Anna, uh, taken from a statement by the Catalan Institute of Human Paleoecology and Social Evolution. Ipnis. <laughs> A hole was discovered in the wall of a cave at the Abrick-Romany archaeological site. The hole is small, more like a wash basin than a bathtub. It's about 16 inches by 12 inches by 4 inches. It's a nice little little sink. Um, So it's clearly not big enough for a leisurely full-body soak at the end of a long day of chasing mammoths, um, but it is enough room to dip body parts in bit by bit. So it's about the size of the bathtub that you do your like post-workout soaks like in. Like body, body parts attached to you. <laughs> Not just somebody else's body parts. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. No. One zone. Going over the grandpa's leg. Yeah. Uh, so charred and heat-altered rocks in and around the small basin show that to heat the bath, Neanderthals heated rocks and then tipped them into the hole. That is a standard way to heat up water. It's like mm-hmm. a kind of sauna kind of thing get hot rocks and you pour the water yeah, but it's but it's sort of yeah but it's nice that there's like the direct evidence right yeah actually yeah absolutely um so the basin itself was also surrounded by rocks and chunks of speleothems so let's make sure to keep in mind that neanderthal behavior like all human behavior isn't monolithic different communities do things in different ways some groups have technologies that others don't um, but it's probably not a huge reach to say that if some Neanderthals at Abrick-Romany were heating up water for washing themselves, or, hey, maybe to do like a nice, warm, steamy shelter. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what I've been doing. My plants <laughs> are loving it. Um, I've got a little steamy shelter here. Uh, so if you threw some herbs or fragrant wood in there, it's like, oh, it'd be so lovely. Oh, so homey. Mm-hmm. Like they mm-hmm. invented. Just sweep out all the yeah. lithic flakes. They, they invented huga. They they all had like little like faux, well maybe real fur blankets and like twinkle lights. Probably real just... fur. That's <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh. Um, so other groups may have done similar things. They may have found yeah, um, the the sort of that that kind of there's something gross on me. I want to get it off. Ooh, I like the way this feels. <laughs> kind of sensation. Um, so. Um, <laughs> Um, so there is, uh, so I'm going to quote from this, uh, report on the bathtub, um, which also mentions a sleeping area quote, 
The inner part of the rock shelter located close to the wall was used as a sleeping area as shown by many small fireplaces as space heaters. In the central part of the site, we found large domestic areas where Neanderthals performed different activities, such as tool making and cooking. Finally, the external part of the campsite was used as a waste dump. Abundant fauna, stone tools, and charcoal remains have been recovered from this area. End quote. Yeah. So the thing I wanted to set up here is that um, sleeping areas usually... In caves or rock shelters, you can tell where the sleeping areas are because there are lots of little hearths next to a wall so that the heat, there's not a lot of, it's these, these fires wouldn't have been roaring fires. They would have been sort of small banked fires and the heat and maybe light sometimes if you wanted light later in the day when the sun has gone down, um, would be reflected off the walls of the cave. And so... Like you said, he would be absorbed by the walls of the cave too. So it would stay warmer longer, Mm -hmm. even if the, if the Mm -hmm. fire went out. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot nice. of sense. Yeah. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about spatial organization. So it's it's oh. one of those parts of archaeological analysis that for 95% of the process is incredibly <laughs> tedious. And then and then you get the actual full data laid out in front of you and it, it's absolutely worth it. But boy. Um, so <laughs> Amber, I want to level set because you and I have excavation experience in very different places and time periods. So what's your experience with sort of how archaeologically we figure out how spaces were used? Yeah. So I admittedly been, it's been a billion years since I've excavated, but, um, but sort of the sense of, of space is, um, if you have a site, if you can get a plan of site. And so looking Mm -hmm. at sort of points of like ingress um and a lot of it like like doors so i'm thinking about how um uh sites where i've worked it's it's sort of a series of walls so i worked in places that it's like mud brick and sand (laughs) so you kind of you you Mm -hmm. like clear it away and so you get a sense of you get a sense of what the the sort of the skeletons of the buildings are and then you can sort of think about like how can you go in and move around because it'd be like narrow alleys or halls or to think like it not necessarily the whole the whole area would be roofed so thinking so you about start that with like a and, sense of movement around the space so yeah you're thinking about sense of movement and then also what's in each of what's inside the walls <laughs> like each each room's walls okay and so um like at Muela there was an area where there was more um there was just like a trash midden and um, mm-hmm. it seemed like it was maybe like an alleyway kind of thing that is kind of you throw off like over the side, like between the two buildings, like Hoik. not ideal, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but also like you have like slag and refuse signifying sort of where metal work, like metallurgy would have happened. Um, and there were like, you know, storerooms. And because mm-hmm. um, you find a lot of ceramic material of the same. So that that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. um, that's that's the kind of stuff that um, like I don't have a super in-depth knowledge of it. But also I, I can't help but like when talking about kind of like areas of areas where different activities happen, it makes me think of my like middle school, like life skills class. Cause they got rid of home ec. <laughs> like, like, so this is sort of how old I am and also how like sort of old fashioned my school district was. They stopped having home ec and shop as like gendered courses, like basically the year before I was there. Mm. And so they kind of collapsed them into one. And so there would just, life we skills. were, we were, 
Yeah, we were, which like we were in the shop or we were in like the kitchen area, like the show kitchen, and there would be like little tables set up and there were different things to do. And so, like, I can't help but have that kind of idea of like, and over here. And then, like, when the bell, when the buzzer goes off, we all rotate. And it's just like, oh, time for me to go, you know, nap some tools. (laughs) It's like, oh, I'm going to go tan some leather, like that sort of thing. But, um, I mean, I it's not not like not. that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know a whole lot because also I wasn't like when you're working in the field as somebody like excavating. Yeah. You don't necessarily see you, the whole picture. You don't see the whole picture. You can't see the whole picture and you aren't necessarily supposed to see the whole picture because you're supposed to be looking at what's happening in that one one meter by one meter square. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you what happened in mine. Somebody built, somebody put a tent up and they had a a fireplace they're a little hearth like hearths and post holes uh, because there was sort of more ephemeral housing structures like ephemeral domestic spaces slightly away from the walled area and so yeah so that's so i mean i i've worked in just places that are like wide open and it's just like well we dug this dune so we don't know what's over there whereas you've worked in a lot of spaces that are sort of these kind of enclosed like yeah very nuanced environments spaces yeah Yeah. (laughs) where it's just like Um, i don't know out there is sort of where (laughs) where things happen yeah and so my experience is i mean it's this it's up to a point it's the same you don't you don't see the full picture until until you do but the the team that i worked with was really um technologically minded like a lot of the stuff that we did was very sort of digitally based um Mm. so for example when we would um you know wash and bag artifacts every time an artifact was found at the site it was labeled with its own specific barcode that were the the barcodes were pre-printed with tag numbers and everything so that when we were entering i know harold dibble man um when we were entering things into the database, all we had to do is scan the barcode and then we could enter information about the artifact and stuff. But more importantly, the barcode was associated with the GPS coordinates, the the X, Y, yeah. and Z coordinates that were scanned in from the total station that we used, yeah. which is using lasers to give each artifact a position in space. And so collectively that's called that that's called shooting the point. Um yes, so we shot we point. shot the point shooting for in. for yeah, for every, anything that that we found, but we did it. It wasn't that. My goodness. So we did the same thing, but there were there were a few steps, sort of like a few few steps of like mm-hmm. admin <laughs> that you were sort of eliminated by uh, Dibble's process. But but also, I don't think we were yeah. in a space where and that even- was necessarily like te- like available. Like the, the infrastructure was there yeah. to no, they- to do with that. You'd have to like right. bring it. Like take it into the city or something i don't know <laughs> so, but um yeah so that sort of thing like that's how like that that's kind of the thing like i would hold i would have the total station shoot the point and it would be recorded and then emily would <laughs> emily would like do gis magic and mm-hmm. and then later like sort of the cumulative effect of all of these things is you start to see what type of stuff is where yeah you so you're not just going off of like some like, yeah some 20 year old being like, well, there's a lot of that over there. Like, <laughs> when, like yeah, or even just world. like hand drawn maps, which aren't yeah. always the best. Yeah. And so, so that's that sort of like tedium that you have to push through <sighs> to get this like incredibly mm-hmm. nuanced. Cause that's the thing about nuance is like, it's, 
Yeah, there's a lot of like data. It requires a lot of it. input. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, we got even more nuanced. Do you want to? So every, yes. anything over two centimeters, we shot in. So anything oh. over two centimeters <laughs> in size got a total station point. But if it was longer than it was wide, we shot both ends so that directionality of artifacts yeah. could be seen. Because okay. because this is an environment where um, sometimes water flows through the site and sometimes water yeah. changes direction. And so if there's directionality, then it suggests that something is directing the artifacts to all point in the same direction. And it's probably not magnets. So it's it's the, it's water. the magnetic pulse shifting. That's what you yeah. saw, right? It's not that. <laughs> Stop it. No, no, um, I kid, but no, that's amazing because that, if it is just so, so if that, stuff falls randomly, if it's just detritus, like they're not going to be like, yeah. I'm going to set it this way. Like that's, I mean, maybe no, no, no. So if you like, see people with like, yeah, if you see some kind of like illness. standardized direction, <laughs> like, there's something going on. I don't know if Neanderthals were subject to obsessive compulsive things, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah so then, then what you get, what you get if when you sort of back it's called back plotting if you you can then digitally model each artifact not only that any of the ones that were a two-point shoot you could see the actual like direction that they were facing and they would combine that with a stitched together photo model of the site so they would combine yeah. that with actual like a sort of a 3d model of the interior of the site and it's it's a really uh, neat way to visualize artifacts and a lot of that gets at spatial organization yeah where you can see that the artifacts have not been disturbed by processes like running water um or or trampling or you know critters burrowing um you can get a sense of where things were dropped and what people were doing in the various spaces in in a living area so it's not actually new news that Neanderthals organized their living spaces. I've known this for a while. In 1993, a paper published in the Journal of Field Archaeology detailed excavations at the site of Tor Farage in what is today southern Jordan. So sediments at that site date back to 70,000 years ago, well before there were any Homo sapiens in the area. So we know that people leaving traces of their activities behind them were Neanderthals in the Levant. Amber, if you need to get a Danny Vendramini joke out of your system right now, I just go ahead. I just can't let it go. I just like I. It's just like what a. It's just such a baffling take that that yeah. like the, the human population humans. was was that they were like assaulted and eaten to the point of to the brink of extinction near by Neanderthals. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, so I know that isn't the case. Very not what happened. Um, you know, every time you mention him. You remind me that he exists. I don't think about him often. And then you you bring him up and I'm just I like, was just boy. doing I was um I was assuming Thanks. that if we were talking about Neanderthals in the Levant, you'd wanna kinda touch on that. Mm. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so this uh but that that's not <laughs> what is in this journal of field archaeology article. No, there's um, field archaeology itself in is it. Yeah, it's it's a very good article, except that it's not as accessibly written as we usually like our information. So here's a summary. Ready? I can't believe that something published in the Journal of Field Archaeology would be inaccessibly written. In 1993, yeah. Is Imagine. it compelling? The figures are very it... nice. <laughs> it's good, good maps. Um, <clears throat> 70,000 years ago, the Levant was a pretty great place to be. The okay. climate was cool and wet. It's wetter than it is now because it's a desert now. 
but Mm -hmm. it was a bit more uh, moist. There were lots of plant and animal resources around. Ostrich eggshell fragments were found at the site, so at the very least they were doing the Neanderthal equivalent of big brunch omelets. Um, Do we... I'm sorry. Do we know that they ate them? Because... I mean, <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? Well, because I know that I I don't know because like like I I've only I mean I've never encountered ostrich eggshells in my own work, but I like mm-hmm. ostrich eggshell is a uh, is a, it's material. a useful material for sure. Yeah, so like yeah. that's why I'm um, saying like did they eat it or were they just like Meh. I, I well I, I don't know for sure actually. Like, did but they, how long have we been eating eggs? Long time. Like if you crack that open, I'd be like Ugh. slimy. Well, looks like something that would it. give me food poisoning. I'm just, okay. I don't know Look, that. I'm a Neanderthal. We know there were ostriches on the, the landscape. Time. Yes. Yeah. No, I, um, we know there were ostriches on the landscape. So ostrich eggs were an available food source. Yeah. The material is found at the site. So ostrich egg shells, at least, were brought to the site. Whether or not they ate the egg part is, I guess, up for debate. Okay, that's fine. But I just, an ostrich egg is the the equivalent of something like twenty seven chicken eggs. So right, like just I, it just in terms of like an efficient resource, it's a good one. Yeah. And then you can use the shell that's afterwards like, to carry water with you. That's like one uh, Gaston milkshake thing, mm, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't need drink to eat whatever. So you can be roughly the size of a barge. <laughs> what a tool! All right, uh, so water <laughs> in this area. Was available from a nearby wadi, as well as a few streams mm-hmm. and springs within a mile or two. So, good area to be. Plant remains found at Torfarage reflect a diet that included pistachios, dates, and other nuts and tubers. The residents of Torfarage placed small hearths strategically against the walls of the rock shelter, where the heat and light would reflect off the stone, like we said, making nice spaces for working and sleeping. And we know that these were... Sort of combined working and sleeping areas because remains well, of like reeds mine. and other grasses were found, suggesting that bedding was laid down in this area. And there were yeah. also lots of chips of stone from tool making, which is a whole different lo- level of getting crumbs in the bed. Yeah, I was Ow. like, my, my combination living sleeping space has chips of Dorito. <laughs> Ooh, I want Doritos. I don't know whether this was like there were distinct working areas and sleeping areas and it was just like that's where the light from the fire was mm-hmm. and you know the stone chips sort of if got you're not done places. with something oh yeah you can yeah. track it around because they get stuck to the bottom mm-hmm. of your feet and you kind of yeah rub, like, or your clothes scrape and, it yeah. off on the reeds just kind of yeah it's very relatable is what I'm saying yeah this is extremely relatable <laughs> like that's to me specifically <laughs> maybe not to other people who have like better sleep hygiene but you know like i i get it um so as early mm-hmm. as seventy thousand years ago neanderthals had designated areas within their living spaces um so let's zoom out a little bit and talk about that idea of a mental or cultural map of familiar places um so the places we live aren't just confined to our houses there are places we go friend go frequently or places where we have memories with family or friends um, there are places where we grew up that are as familiar as our own front door. So Neanderthals had those places too. You know, like for me, the Target. <laughs> I know that Target. <laughs> it's a place I go. Um, can I tell you, my coworkers, so many of my mm-hmm. coworkers are Midwestern 
and specifically live and work in Minneapolis, which is like Target Central, the home of Target. It, it, it is and the home my Target. coworker. I, I know, I know. And um my coworker tried to get a Target baby shopping cart for her one year old. Yeah. Um as a Christmas gift and they were sold out. But she did end up getting her a tiny baby sized shopping cart and there she's got videos on her Instagram of little baby like tootling around going shopping and then like leaning against a wall to take a break and be like whoo <laughs> and then tootling with the cart some more it's so that's cute. me at target <laughs> <laughs> take five um all right yeah okay so i'm gonna pull that is so cute i'm gonna pull from an article mm-hmm. on the conversation which was written by archaeologist matt pope and andrew shaw uh, about the site heard from of them before Co- they um we, our episode on Boxgrove was oh, pulled from okay. some of their material okay okay yeah. okay um and the it's about the site of la cote de uh, saint Bernard, saint Bernard, which is in jersey on the channel islands not hmm. The Channel Islands. Not the California California ones. No, the ones between the UK and France. The one in the... Which is why it's got a French sounding name. Quote, this cave and ravine system is on a granite headland on the modern coast and was repeatedly occupied by Neanderthals between 240,000 and 40,000 years ago. It provides lots of evidence for repeated visits to the site. This includes hundreds of thousands of stone tools and butchered animal bones. At times, visits to La Cote were short but frequent. Stopovers by groups moving around a wide area and bringing their tools with them. In other periods, visits were longer, though less frequent, with Neanderthals sourcing material from the local area to produce tools. It's compelling that, despite these changes, La Cote always seems to have been an important place in Neanderthal itineraries. The nature of their visits varied from short-term visits, deliberately traveling in from some distance away, to longer-term activity at the site itself and within the surrounding area. But while the specific way in which Neanderthal groups used this particular place in the surrounding area varied, all their visits involved deliberate, repeated, and structured movements through these landscapes to La Cote. This is clearly not the result of random drift, but of hominins who could and did mentally map their world. Repetitively occupied, quote, persistent places, end quote, such as La Cote uh, de Saint-Berlade, give us a rare opportunity to consider how Neanderthals structured their world over long periods of time. They persistently returned to La Cote not because of the practical features it possessed, prospect, shelter, a visible way marker on route ways through the landscape, but because of the social importance it acquired from being used time and again. Yeah. So exactly what you were talking about before, which is this idea of of a landscape that was known, right? Culturally known. And and this is the place we go for this. This is the place we do this. Um, I just, I I wanted to give a sense of of competence to to (laughs) Neanderthals, like put Neanderthals in a landscape and you know, it, imbue them with the same knowledge that, that you or I might, well, I wouldn't because I'm bad at directions, but like the same knowledge that someone might have if you, if you put them in the city they grew up in or the, the place they grew up in and say, where would you go for, for this? Or like, what, what would a, uh, a path on a normal day look like for you? Just kind of giving the sense of, of people moving through a known landscape. It wasn't, again, what you said kind of up top about, 
Neanderthal groups, ha- this perception that Neanderthals were just sort of scraping by and and in this very unforgiving and punishing landscape. Um, sometimes they were. Yes, there are places during Neanderthal occupation of Europe, there were places that were very cold and kind of bleak. And especially sort of towards the end of Neanderthal occupation, populations may have had a hard time. But for the most part, these were yeah, well, people we're looking who at tens knew of thousands of years. Yeah. 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 These are people who knew what they were doing. These are people who weren't always just like following resources to wherever. They knew where they were going and they knew, or at least they they generally knew what they would find when they got there. The sense of of reliability of a place is something that pops up in the Neanderthal record. And you can see it at places like Abrik Romani. You can see it at La Cote Saint-Berlade. You can see it later. Um, you know, it's it's a, a homo sapiens thing too. You can see it at um, guest and friend of the show, Dr. Danielle McDonald. Her site, Harana 4 in Jordan, is is a site where people came back to year after year for seasonal activities. So like it, this is something that's been going on in human behavior for 200 plus thousand years. I also go to Danielle Mac- Dr. Danielle McDonald's house for seasonal activities too. It's true. It's true. Mostly <laughs> petting her dogs. Yes. She's got very good oh. dogs. She's the best dogs. So before we wrap up the episode, I want to look at one other aspect of home. Home cooking. Mm. Oh, did Neanderthals have favorite flavors? Did somebody's mom have a special way of cooking an elk leg? Probably. I have no, I have no evidence of that, but I bet. Um, flavoring food is something that humans of all types have been doing for at least 70,000 years, probably well, a lot longer. I know a few humans that don't. Well, you know, <laughs> we can't, that's the problem with generalizing, but despite, um, Despite some people's preference for salt and not any pepper. Um, <laughs> spicy. Uh, too spicy. That pepper is too spicy. Uh, so I found a great article that was originally published in the conversation, but I found it on sapiens.org that mm-hmm. provides a roundup of evidence for Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens taking the bus to Flavortown. Before we get there, Amber, if Guy Fieri were a Neanderthal, what would his show be called? Antlers, stone tools, and knives. Okay. 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 Great. I was going to go with something like rock shelters, caverns, and caves. But that's just like living spaces. That's why. Anyway. Antlers, stone tools, and knives. Antlers. And knives. Okay. Well, we'll workshop that. Quote, in Shanadar Cave... Iraqi Kurdistan, associated with early modern humans around 40,000 years ago and Neanderthals around 70,000 years ago, we also found ancient food fragments. This included wild mustard and terebinth, which is, terebinth is where turpentine used to be derived from. It's a wild pistachio and it's in the cashew family. Uh, It's got a very pungent seed flavor, nut flavor. Is that related to the... um... Bridge to terebithia? Yeah. No, as far as I know, I have no idea. So we're on the bridge to Terabinthia. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's pungent because in at both those times, it is apparent that wild mustard and wild pistachio were mixed into foods. Mm. We discovered wild grass seeds mixed with pulses in the charred remains from the Neanderthal layers. 
Previous studies at Shanadar found traces of grass seeds in the tartar on Neanderthal teeth. So they were cooking up porridges, at least some sort of thing. We often found ground or pounded pulse seeds, such as bitter vetch, grass pea, and wild pea. The people who lived in these caves added the seeds to a mixture that was heated up with water during grinding, pounding, or mashing of soaked seeds. Because you can Sounds tell like microscopically that the starches were altered. Okay. So they had been cooked. Um, well, they, they had mm-hmm. been cooked or they had been pounded? Was it like physical or chemical? Both. Okay. Both. So far, this sounds like something yeah. my dad would eat. <laughs> the majority of wild pulse mixes... Well, no, because it's too spicy. Hang on. The majority of wild <laughs> pulse mixes were characterized by bitter-tasting mixtures. Oh, okay. In modern cooking, these pulses are often soaked, heated, and de-hulled. So that's removing the seed coat to re- reduce their bitterness and toxins. The ancient remains we found suggest humans have been doing this for tens of thousands of years. But the fact that seed coats weren't completely removed hints that these people wanted to retain a little bit of the bitter flavor. Based on the evidence from... Yes. I have a question that I hope isn't too blue for our audience. But If If it is, I will snip it out. Well, if they left the seed coats on partially, would that mean that they were more likely to be gassy? Because that's harder to digest. Oh, I don't know. Could they be that's they a great question. party parties after dinner? I don't know. It might, it might have been... Uh, it is a lot of fiber. Yeah. I don't know. But like that that kind of stuff that... Like those... Like the, they the might have, and I stuff don't know are, what the Neanderthal gut was like, though. So like maybe... What was their microbiome? More robust. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, <laughs> I would they like to know. Like, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm... That's what I'm working towards. Mm-hmm. Neanderthal gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on the evidence from plants found during this time span, there is no doubt both Neanderthals and early modern human diets included a variety of plants. We know this. We've talked about this. Previous studies found food residues trapped in tartar on the teeth of Neanderthals from Europe and Southwest Asia, which show they cooked and ate grasses and tubers such as wild barley and medicinal plants. The remains of carbonized plants show that they gathered pulses and pine nuts. So that's a chanitor, but... Also, uh, in a different location, one of the earliest known flavoring ingredients from the Neolithic period, so not Neanderthals, a bit later, is the use of garlic mustard seed. So this is about eight, nine thousand years ago. Fragments of these tiny seeds were found in food remains at sites in Southwest Asia. Plants with similar bitter or tangy flavors show up early in the archaeological record of food, too. So you've got wild almonds. Uh, They're very bitter. Don't eat a lot of them. They're poison. I won't be eating any of them. Yes. Well, they're, they're specifically poison to, to you, a person with a tree nut <laughs> allergy. But I believe wild almonds contain, the bitter almonds contain arsenic. Hey, hi, hello. It's future Anna editing this episode, which is now in the past. Isn't time wild? I just wanted to correct myself here. The poison that's found in bitter almonds, there are actually two compounds. One is called amygdalin and the other one is cyanide. It might seem like a little detail, but man, that was going to bother me if I didn't fix it. So there you go. Again, don't eat too many bitter almonds. So terebinth, again, uh, is in the pistachio slash cashew family. It's very tannin rich and very oily. So like good resource, good source of fats uh, would have been Mm -hmm. a little, you know, had that. Puckery mouthfeel. And wild fruits, which are sharp, sometimes sour, sometimes tannic um those are all over the place sometimes fermented see previous episode wine 
Yeah, so those are all over the place in sites from Southwest Asia and Europe during the later Paleolithic period. So after Neanderthals. But these plants were eaten for tens of thousands of years across areas thousands of miles apart, which suggests that it's a behavior that is earlier, right? People had been probably doing it for a longer time because we have some evidence of Neanderthals adding a little something to their food and then much more evidence of Homo sapiens flavoring their food. So probably Neanderthals did a little bit more of that than we see in the record. Um, Can we faithfully replicate what Neanderthal cuisine tasted like? No, of course not. Because Neanderthal diet depended in large part on location, climate, and resource availability. But we can get a sense of what flavor profiles of Neanderthal cooking might have been. So, you know, next time you uh, are thinking about eating in the Middle Paleolithic, um, allow yourself to branch out a little bit from meat or grass, you know? Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's another way that uh, Neanderthals are just like us because, you know, diet, depending on location, climate, resource availability is true of Homo sapiens. That's like saying, what do humans it's eat? True. And being like, well, where? A lot of stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Factor that into the idea of home too, right? Home smells a yeah. certain way. Like I, I absolutely remember the smells of like my childhood best friend's houses. I, if I walked somewhere and smelled that smell again, I would know exactly yeah. where I was. You know, the idea of, of cooking smells being more interesting than just like roasting meat and yeah. uh, sort of activity being more interesting than just hunt, gather, make yeah. tools, sleep. Yeah. And these are, I, I want to, when we think about the deep past, I want to give those, give those humans a benefit of the doubt. Uh, that their lives were as rich and sort of full of place, placiness as ours yeah. are. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Amber, do you have any? I love that. Yeah. Any last thoughts about thinking about home like going back 250,000 years and thinking about home? Yeah. I, I like, I'm quite affected by this, this sort of reminder or this sort of evidence for um, a sense of belonging in the past and community and, and, and just sort of, um, kind of a certainty, uh, because we think about the past as being just like completely like unknowable and uncertain and just being like buffeted by the, the winds of terrifying at all times. And and, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that it's just like at any, at any point you could turn around and something could, could like eat you or something. But, but even if there (laughs) is that, but, but I mean, even, even with, even amid sort of like environmental threats um, that we sort of think of, I, I think that uh, maybe implicitly a lot of people think of uh, home as being kind of existing in a binary with the environment. You know what I'm saying? Like the sort of, mm. um, the sort of, the, like it's the a built wilderness. space safe from the environment. Or? Yeah, yeah. Do yeah. you keep the environment out okay. at home? Um, yeah. And so maybe, um, like maybe the, maybe the lines are a bit more blurred than, than we might sort of the, the sort of mental shortcuts that our brains make just to process information. But also um, this sounds like even if you aren't living in a place full time, knowing that it's there and knowing that it's been there for generations, there's sort of, there comes that sense of certainty and security and, and that you, you can, you can know that, you know, come 10 months from now, you'll come back here. 
Um, and if you don't come back here, your family will come back here. And, and just that kind of sense of continuity and, and, and kind of, um, it makes, it makes the, like, it makes deep antiquity feel, it, it makes it feel closer, but it also makes it feel, um, comprehensible that like they knew, they knew it and they were, hmm. um, that, that that kind of like just because we don't know what was going on doesn't mean that they didn't know what was going on and and that there was <laughs> like it was a sort of a, a kind of tangible real place um and th- there could be that that sense of of history and it would look different um but but sort of that one could think about the past and the future uh, by having, by being able to like feel comfortable in the present or having some kind of security in the present. And I think that that is mm-hmm. something that doesn't come through in a lot of discussions of the past uh, because there's so yeah, much the idea focus of on precarity. And, and yeah. Yeah. And that maybe things weren't mm-hmm. as precarious and, as um, precarity doesn't end when you have like organized agriculture or like, and a, like a, a sort of recognizable economy or things like that. Like precarity. We solved all that. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just that, that sort of, um, that, that someone's life and, and like living strategies could be so fundamentally different from, from yours and mine that, um, but it can still serve the same purpose. Of sort of making them feel, yeah, no, they know who they are, where they are, and who they're among. Like I, I think that that's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I find that like that's what home is. Extremely comforting. I think, yeah, it's just like very the, mm-hmm. this sort of capacity that like we have the capacity to be at home, but that it's something that maybe that comes up more. It's almost like something that we're wired to do rather than something that comes with. Material resources or Big air relationships, civilization. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. That like it's sort of like, well, we can do it in other ways too. But I, like, this is just really, mm-hmm. I don't know, what a cozy episode. I love this. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I was hoping you would. This is a wonderful break from Zillow for me. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for home. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So that's that's gonna. Thank you for joining us in our little home this podcast for the past hour um next, yeah we've we've been time. taking we've been residing in the rock shelters of your ears it's sure. our cave abric abric romanier <laughs> all right well ear brick romanier aren't you glad you stayed around for that <sighs> we will be back in your ear shelters soon with with more episodes and until then you can if you, find if you already gave us a five-star review please don't change it because of that we won't say that again no come back <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah but if you haven't please go ahead and hit us with five stars wherever you listen which is also where you can find us you can also find us on our website, thedirtpod.com. If you want to get in touch, you can hit us up at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and we, we will, will eventually write you back. Very soon. <laughs> yeah, we really will. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, we will post new information about the upcoming Pass the Mic grant cycle very soon. Again, we're sorry. <laughs> we're just we're just two little people. Um, just... And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're over at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at 
Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. Go check us out. A lot of posts about wine lately. <laughs> Jenna's doing a fantastic <laughs> job. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.